Amen. Amen. So that's, that's really why I started here, because um, pride is the predominant sin. Pride was the first sin. That's, that's the handout that we want yesterday. If you were not, excuse me, last week, if you were not here last week and you have the handout, I left the blanks, all blanks, so that you would have to write the same word in pride all those times. Um, because it's true. Pride is your greatest enemy. Pride leads to every other vice. Pride is the occupational hazard of every success. It was the first sin um, ever committed. Um, And the picture of pride is all over man's fall in in the garden. So there just is no no question about it being our greatest danger. And it's, it's always... Um, resident therein and while I know I'm preaching to the choir on the one hand it's one of these things that it's just good for us to go through and look at um, again each week I ask you to turn to Psalm 51 because it's a it's a it's a beautiful reminder of the life of David and the scriptures as he humbles himself. You remember David well, and God had given him victory. God had given him both the northern and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. They were united in one, and and God gave David victory over everyone and everything. And he had everything that any human being on the face of the earth at that time could have ever wanted at his disposal. And it was time for kings to go to war. And David said, I've had enough of this war. I deserve a break today. We all have that resonant in our hearts. I deserve a break today. I don't care whether you're the king or whether you're a pastor or whether you're a mom or a great mom. You come to the point when you say, in essence... I've labored long enough. I've done enough. I've done my thing. Uh, Do you recognize when those thoughts even come to you, how sinful that is? You can do nothing apart from the grace of God. Even the opportunity to do something is all his grace. We can't take our next breath without him. And yet we, we often look and think, well, it's me. No, it's not you. It's Christ in you, the hope for glory. But we have to remind ourselves. And David did remind himself. And he took a walk on the roof. And he fell. And took a great fall. We'll see that pictured as we go back to Proverbs. But I want you to see it here in Psalm 51. Because this is the result um, of his sin. I love this little book that I have. It's uh, Spurgeon in the Psalms. It's one little part, this, this much is all, from all of Spurgeon's writings that this particular author really liked and said, boy, this is powerful, and they pack it right in there, then they put the psalm. It's in the New King James. I'm not going to read uh, the entire psalm this morning for the sake of time, but if you're there with me, look at verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sins are always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. There is the picture of a man who took a great fall and in complete repentance acknowledges and asks for the mercy of God, taking all of the blame, which of course he deserved, and recognizing that only mercy can grant him forgiveness. Spurgeon said of this, and he's going to key this particular writing, he's going to key on, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. He says that it's not enough to blot out the sin. David's person is defiled, and he would be purified. He would have God himself cleanse him, for none but he could do it efficiently and effectively. The washing must be thorough. It must be repeated. Therefore, he cries, wash me thoroughly. The die is in itself immovable. And the sinner, having lain long in its its crimson, is ingrained. But the Lord wash and wash and wash again until the last stain is gone and not a trace of defilement is left. Hypocrites are content in their garments, their garments are washed, but true supplicants cry, wash me. The careless soul is content with a nominal cleansing, but the true awakening conscience desires a real and practical washing and that of the most complete and efficient kind. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. When we hate what the Lord hates, we will soon make an end of it to our joy and to our peace. I just thought that was a, a particular blessing and, and, a, and a lesson there pictured uh, the word washing means to be performed like a like a fuller or like taking it to a you know a laundry and and the word actually has the idea of somebody that treads on it if you think of a of an old movie where where the the wash stuff had to be beat on a rock or people are actually stamping on the wash it's that kind of a picture it's that kind of a squeezing out of the defilement that was in the garment that that word indicates thoroughly means much much washing. It means having to be washed many, many times. It's the idea of a continual washing that, that's needed. And iniquity is the word for perversity, depravity. Um, it's, a, it's a guilt of condition of moral evil. Sin It's the word for habitual sinfulness. It's sort of like a crouching beast with a passion of evil that is resonant inside of of a person. And this cleansing means to be purified, to be clean um, inwardly, 
to be, to be made clean morally, to be pure, to be cleared, to be unadulterated, to be uncontaminated, to be purged, literally to be made holy. That's what David is crying out here and what we need to cry out if we see ourselves in the presence of a holy God. And in fact, in, the, in these passages, David, in his humanity and in his humility, is appealing for forgiveness. And he pictures it in actually three different ways. The first is he's, he pictures it as blot out my transgressions means wipe away David's sinful acts of rebellion and willful deviation. He knows that his sins are written in God's book and he pleads that his sins would be removed from God's book. So that's that blotting out. You think of the ink blotter, blotting it out. He he wants his sins blotted out from from God's book. Don't we all? That's what David is asking for. He's pleading for it. Do we take sin that seriously and our repentance and our confession that seriously? David is saying, wash away all my iniquity. He compares himself to a foul garment stained with filth. He asks for a deep cleaning of the filthy stains. This sounds so trivia, but um, I am a wreck with t-shirts. Ask Judy. I stain t-shirts uncleanable. I don't know why, but if I eat anything with spaghetti sauce, I always wear a white t-shirt. If I eat anything that has chocolate in it, I always eat it with a white t-shirt. And of course I drink coffee in any color, but always on a white t-shirt. And I, I, I spill them continuously all over my t-shirt. She does everything she can do to clean them out. We've bought every product on the market to clean it out. And she finally throws away my t-shirts or uses them as rags and I have to buy new ones. And that's nothing compared to the defilement of our souls because of the wretchedness of sin. And David, in that same way, is saying, God, if you don't remove the stain, it can't be removed. And so I plead and I beg. And, of course, he had a far picture because he knew that from his family there would be someone that would come that would sit on his throne forever the Lord Jesus Christ, but he, he didn't understand in the fullness even the sacrifices that were going on in the temple that without the shedding of blood there can be no cleansing. But it's pictured there. Without Christ there is no cleansing. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. And he also pleaded for a cleanse me from my sin. That pictured the purification, the ritual purification, the ceremonial purification that David knew he knew would need before he could go into the tabernacle for worship because the presence of God resided there who was holy. So there had to be a ritual cleaning. How much more should the people of God want to confess our sins and keep ourselves clean and holy as we daily come into his presence in our worship? It's one of the reasons we do the Lord's Supper. It's one of the reasons it's there is that a people might examine our hearts and we might cleanse ourselves that we can come 
boldly to the throne of grace because we're clean and we have sought that kind. It's pride that keeps us from that. That's the point of what I'm trying to share here. And so I hope that you, you get that and will confess appropriately and take this sin of pride seriously. Now look at the book of Proverbs and you see down here the perils of pride. I just want to walk through that um, again and I want to walk through in an orderly fashion again as we just go through Proverbs. So we'll start right at um, we'll start right at Proverbs 6 and just look, look at Proverbs and, and consider uh, all the things that I have down here. Consider how much God hates it Consider how it causes contention and disunity. Consider how it leads to shame and destruction, complete. And, and you just see that building all the way through these passages that are, that are there for our admonition. It should make us afraid. It sh- this should rise up the fear of the Lord in our hearts, knowing that apart from grace... This can be hidden in different secret pockets, and if it plays itself out, it won't be pretty. It won't be pretty at all. So Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven, which are an abomination to him. And haughty eyes is number one on that list. Of course, it goes on with other things, but all those other things occur because somebody is proud. Why does somebody lie? Somebody lies because they don't want to be caught. And the reason they don't want to be caught is because they're trying to cover sin. And the reason we cover sin is because we're what? Proud. Uh, so it's, it's, it's all connected. So that's why it's, it's number one on the list. And it's not just a little sin. It's an abomination. And then on a list, God puts it there as, as, number, as number one. Look, if you would, at chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. We're following along. We're going to go in order of the book so it's easier for you. Chapter 11 and verse 2 said, When pride comes, comes dishonor. But with the humble, which we'll get to in the next few weeks, is wisdom. When pride comes, it brings dishonor. I mean, the result is a, is a stepping down. You'll go from dishonor, eventually, you'll be so completely deceived, it'll be complete destruction. And so we see that beginning downward there in verse 11. Look at Proverbs 13, please. Proverbs 13 and verse 10. Depending on your translation, you may have the word insolence in there, but through pride, that's what that means, comes nothing but strife. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. As I said, teachability. So you could pull out of there if you wanted to from an intent and say that wisdom comes to those that are teachable. Who's teachable? Who will hear wisdom? Who prays and asks God, give me wisdom from a sincere heart? Only those people who are humble. Pride comes, and with that pride, there's strife. Um, And you'll always find that in the context of relationships, as well as your relationship with the Lord. 
Look at um, Proverbs 16. This probably is the passage that you're most familiar with, Proverbs 16 and verses 18 and 19. Here he unfolds it all the way to its end. Similar to the way James does. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoils of the proud. So proud people end up in destruction. Whatever it is that they're trying to hide, whatever there is they're trying to run from, that which they're trying to cover, run, and hide from is that which will destroy them. It did David, didn't it? And God was merciful to him, and it will you or me. Look, if you would, at um, Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. And then look, if you would, at verse 29. Page 29. My mouth won't say what my brain is telling it to. Chapter 29 and verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And so we, we see these truths. We have to apply them. We have to internalize them. I gave you an application sheet, probably the best application sheet in verses in the New Testament is Philippians chapter 2. You're all familiar with it. You could look at it this week, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect example that we have of humility, humbled himself to become a man, humbled himself further to die for man, the spotless, sinless Son of God, humbled him further, not just to die, but to die the worst death on an old rugged cross. And, and we have several things here, 12, that I, that I put that would um, help you. We'll look at them briefly sometime in this study. And some questions you can ask, and then a, a suggested practice um, I think this is very, very helpful practice. Regularly and anonymously, or at least unexpectedly, do something that serves others that normally would be servant's work or someone else's duty. Do it with a hard attitude of unto the Lord. It's a means of humbling yourself for the sake of your own soul. So find things continuously that um, at first glancing, glancing pass is not your job. Somebody else's job is not your work. Maybe if your heart's honest with you, you would even look and think, um, that's beneath me. Uh, you will do your soul so much good to just look continually for those opportunities and then without fanfare, to the extent that you can be anonymous and say nothing about it, just as unto the Lord. Just do that thing. Just, just do that thing.
Christ gave us not only an example of dying on the cross for us, but he received his disciples on the night before they would betray him, to have fellowship with him, to provide a meal for them. And the first thing he does is he does the lowest servant's job. He washes their feet. How, how can we be any less? And, and, and you see, Christ did that being the son of God. He did that in his humility to show us perfect humility. If he did that, how much more do we need that kind of a heart attitude and that kind of looking for how can I serve um, how can I put others before myself? Which, of course, is the heart of that passage. So I close with this. It's a Puritan prayer. You're familiar with the Valley of Vision? I hope. What a tremendous book. O thou terrible meek, let not pride swell my heart. My nature is mine beneath my feet, the dust to which I shall return. In body I surpass not the meanest reptile. Wherever difference or form and an intellect is mine is a free grant of thy goodness. Every facility of mind and body is thine undeserved gift. Low as I am a creature and, lo- and I am lowlier as a sinner, I am trampled by law times without number. Sin's deformity is stamped upon me, darkens my brow, touches me with corruption, how can I flaunt myself proudly? Lowest abasement is my due place, for I am less than nothing before thee. Help me to see myself in thy sight, then pride must wither, decay, die, and perish. Humble my heart before thee, replenish it with thy choicest gifts, as water rests not on barren hill summits, but flows down to fertilize lower valleys, so make me the lowest of the lowly, that my spiritual riches may exceedingly abound. When I leave duties undone, may condemning thoughts strip me of pride, deepen me with devotion and thy service, and quicken me to be more watchful in care. When I am tempted to think highly of myself, grant me to see the willies, powers of my spiritual enemy. Help me to stand with wary eye on a watchful tower of faith and cling to thy determined grasp, with determined grasp to thy humble Lord. If I fall, let me hide myself in my Redeemer's righteousness. And when I escape, may I ascribe all deliverance to thy grace. Keep me humble, meek and lowly, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed.